You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join me today for a Thursday afternoon live question and answer program here on our Enduring Word YouTube channel. I'm very pleased to be here because it's been three Thursdays in a row that I've had to miss. Uh, one for a family occasion. Actually, it was the birthday of our youngest son, and I wanted to be there for that. And then I was out of town for two weeks. I'm so pleased that over those three weeks, we could have uh, three men who are dear friends of mine. Uh, Lance, Chuck, and Miles, guys who are part of our Enduring Word board. Each one of them sat in a different week. But I have to say, even though I enjoyed their uh, time to fill in for me, I'm very pleased that I can be back with you on a Thursday afternoon, that we can come together and talk about things about the Bible and the Christian life together. Uh, if you don't know who I am, I'm not surprised. I suppose the people who uh, don't know who I am far, far outnumber any few number of people who might know who I am. But one thing I do is I have a written commentary on the entire Bible. And uh, you can find it at EnduringWord.com. You can also find it at BlueLetterBible.org. Uh, BLB.org is a great reference. That is a marvelous online reference tool. So what I like to do, in addition to my work of producing Bible resources, uh, written commentary, audio, video, translating that into a lot of different languages, in addition to that, I'm pleased to come together here on Thursday afternoons. It's just a little bit after 12 noon Pacific time on the West Coast of California as I'm joining you. And I enjoy coming together for an hour or so. We see how long it goes uh, where I am available to answer your questions. We have a moderator for the questions. His name is Devin. So if you just uh, indicate in the question answer, the side chat, what your question is, try to state your question as clearly as possible. Uh, sometimes we get questions, and I'm sure it's clear in the mind of the person writing it what they're meaning, but they perhaps don't express themselves very well in what they type into their phone or keyboard or whatever it is. We also follow this pattern where we begin with a lead question uh, normally. Sometimes we go straight to the questions in the side chat, but uh, I do like to start with a lead question about something that I would like to address, uh, maybe a question that's left over from a previous Q&A. Uh, maybe it's something that comes in on social media or email, or perhaps it's just something that I would like to talk about, and that's the case today. One more thing before I get into our lead question. I do want to welcome, and I do want to say a great big thank you to our TWR360 viewers. Uh, we're in a partnership to distribute, to sort of uh, get this uh, weekly video out over the TWR360 channel. TWR, of course, stands for Trans World Radio. It's a marvelous ministry that for decades has been doing cutting-edge ministry of getting God's Word and Bible information, Bible teaching out to the world over shortwave radio and then now, of course, over various internet channels as well. What I want to talk to you about today is a simple subject. What makes Jesus's ascension important? And the reason why I bring that up today is because today, Thursday, May 13th, 
is Ascension Day. It's the day we commemorate on the Christian calendar the ascension of Jesus up to heaven. And of course, that Ascension Day comes 40 days after Easter. So you just count back 40 days from Easter. You come to that day. It's always on a Thursday, of course, because Easter on the modern Christian calendar is always on a Sunday. Uh, And always on a Thursday following 40 days after Easter is Ascension Day. It's the day that we commemorate the ascension of Jesus to heaven. Now, there's a few things I want to say about Ascension Day to begin with. First of all, most notably, I would like to point out that uh, Ascension Day is always meaningful for me because I always feel like I should be in the city of Siegen, Germany on Ascension Day. Because for many years, I guess what, maybe there's 11, 12 years in a row, I have been part of a pastors and leaders and Christian workers conference that would be held a few days before and a few days after Ascension Day. In German, it's called Christi Himmelfahrt. Uh, the, the commemoration of Ascension Day, we would do it that week every year. And so this year, obviously, I'm not there. I'm here in California. Again, because of COVID restrictions, we just haven't been able to do things the way that we would please. Uh, that was the same case last year. I am certainly hoping that next year, in the year 2022, I will be with my dear brothers and sisters in Germany, in the city of Siegen, at the Church Calvary Chapel, Siegen, and we will once again be having a leadership conference uh, for those people who are interested in serving the Lord, really in any way whatsoever. So I just want to give a recognition and um, maybe share a little bit of sorrow with my German brothers and sisters, and really people from all over Europe come and attend that that conference has been such a meaningful thing in my life and the life of my wife, Ingalil, over the years. Uh, we look forward to when we can get back together with that. But here's the other thing. I think that the ascension of Jesus is an event in his life that is extremely important, yet often neglected. What do I mean by that? Well, if you ask somebody to, to mention the notable parts, the notable events in the life of Jesus— What are they going to mention? They're going to mention his birth, of course. They're going to mention his, uh, you know, temptation. They're going to mention his baptism. They're going to mention his miracles. They're going to mention, of course, his death, burial, and resurrection. What we often neglect to mention and think of as an important event in the life of Jesus was his ascension. But let me tell you something. When Jesus ascended to heaven... It was a very important event on the Christian calendar and in his life. And I I want to talk to you today about what makes Jesus's ascension important, why you should be excited that the day I'm recording this, of course, I don't know what day you're going to be watching it on, but the day I'm recording this is Ascension Day, year 2021. So we're going to take a look at two Bible passages. The first one is in Luke chapter 24, verses 49 through 53, It's the record of the ascension in the Gospel of Luke. So this beginning with the words of Jesus to his disciples, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So that's what Jesus told his disciples. Now, and he led them out as far as Bethany. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. 
And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. So here we see Jesus beginning there in verse 49, uh, repeating that promise of his father to them that they would be endued with power from on high that would be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, 10 days after this. Then afterwards, verse 50 describes that he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And then verse 51 says that while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. So Jesus continued to appear to his people for 40 days following his resurrection. But eventually came the day when he would ascend to heaven. And when Jesus ascended to heaven, he left the earth literally blessing his church. His hands were upraised in a priestly fashion because Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And as he was blessing his church, he was carried up into heaven. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ continues to bless his church as much as his people will receive. You know, think about the hands of Jesus that he raised up above his disciples as his whole body was raised up above him in the ascension. Nothing but blessing had ever come from those hands. But now as the great high priest, Jesus stands over his people to bless them. And when Jesus blesses his people, I want you to know something. It's not just a hopeful wish. Hey, I hope things will work out for you. Or I hope you're going to be feeling better. No, no, no. The blessing of Jesus has inherent power within it. I I like something that Charles Spurgeon said. If you don't mind me quoting Spurgeon here. Spurgeon said, if he has blessed you, you shall be blessed For there is no power in heaven or earth or hell that can reverse the blessing which he gives. Well, I just say amen to that from Charles Spurgeon. The blessing of Jesus has inherent power. Now, verse 51 of Luke chapter 24 tells us that as Jesus had his hands raised up in blessing his church, it says that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Notice. Jesus was not carried to heaven by angels or by a whirlwind of fire, as was Elijah in the Old Testament. He just simply raised up into, it's as if he flew from the earth up into the sky until they couldn't see him anymore and he went to heaven. This was a visible demonstration that Jesus was God and that he could rise of his own power choosing to suspend the laws of gravity. Now, why did he do this? Well, let me give you a few points here. It was unthinkable. Actually, I'll say this. It was impossible, really, that the resurrected Jesus would die again. Could you imagine such? I mean, Jesus wasn't merely resuscitated from the dead, as happened on a few occasions in the Bible prior to Jesus' time and a few times afterwards. He wasn't just resuscitated from the dead to die again. Jesus was resurrected, which meant he would never die again. So it was unthinkable, even impossible, that the resurrected Jesus would die. It was also unthinkable that Jesus would fade away, that he would just appear fewer and fewer times until nobody saw him anymore. That was unthinkable. It was unthinkable that Jesus would just suddenly disappear You know, his disciples would see him regularly for a period of time and then 
Just no more they wouldn't see him. No, this way of leaving, of Jesus in the presence and in the eyesight of his disciples rising up to heaven, it was decisive. It was visible to his followers. This kind of departure of Jesus was essential because this is what it did. It marked the end of one chapter and the beginning of another chapter. The chapter that ended was the bodily ministry of Jesus upon this earth in his own physical body, either pre-resurrection or post-resurrection. It was the end of the bodily ministry of Jesus Christ on this earth. It was the beginning of his ministry to the church in heaven and the beginning of the outpouring of his spirit upon his church. Now, let's take a quick look at one other passage that speaks of the ascension of Jesus. Luke recorded it in his gospel, but then also Luke, the author of the book of Acts, records it in Acts chapter 1. Let's just take a quick verse at verses, look, I should say, at verses 9, 10, and 11, where we read this. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men of them stood by in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So do do you see how Luke adds a couple details in the Acts narrative? Uh, compared to his Luke narrative, the gospel narrative. In verse 9, he says that he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Jesus was taken up from them as he blessed them. We know that from Luke chapter 24, verse 50. And as he slowly disappeared into the sky, he was surrounded by a cloud and, and the disciples all the time continued to look upward. Verse 9 says, while they watched, he was taken up. Now, Verse 11 tells us that where two men came by and uh, these two men were presumably angels. They asked him, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Now, again, those two men, once again, apparently they were angels, told the disciples to put their attention in the right place. Jesus told you to go back to Jerusalem and to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So get busy about that. Stop wondering about where Jesus went and how he went. You you need to get filled with the Holy Spirit and then go to the ends of the earth. Now, they also said something else. I I want you to see this carefully here in verse 11. He said, uh, the angel said, This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Do you see that at the end of verse 11? Just as Jesus left, so he's going to return. Check this out, friends. Jesus Christ physically left this earth. He's going to physically return to this earth. He will so come in like manner. He visibly left this earth. He visibly will so come in like manner. He left from the Mount of Olives. He will return to the Mount of Olives and so come in like manner. He left in the presence of his disciples and he will so come in like manner. He will return in the presence of his disciples and he left blessing his church. He's going to come back 
blessing his church as well. So again, we see these important narratives. Now, let me finish here with giving you seven reasons why the ascension is important or necessary. You could use either word there. And I'll go through these very quickly. Number one, the ascension of Jesus was necessary to show that Jesus was really gone. Again, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Acts chapter 1 verse 9 says he was taken up into heaven. The, the disciples needed to know that the page had turned, that, that Jesus wasn't going to be with them coming and going, so to speak, as he was in those 40 days after his resurrection. No, they needed something decisive. No, he has been taken up to heaven. He's really gone. Don't expect him to appear again in his physical presence until he comes again in glory to rule and reign on this earth. So that's the first aspect. Here's the second one. Number two, the ascension of Jesus was necessary to show where Jesus went. I want you to think of all the potential ways that Jesus could have parted from his disciples. He could have uh, walked off into the wilderness. He could have walked north, south, couldn't have walked west. That was the sea. He could have done something like that. He could have uh, gone in the sky, but horizontally. No, he went up, at least in symbolic sense, to heaven. That's the whole idea behind it being lifted up beyond the clouds. They needed to know that not only was Jesus gone in a decisive sense, but he was in heaven. That's what it says there in Luke chapter 24. He was carried up into heaven. Acts chapter 1 verse 11. He was taken up from you into heaven. So they needed to know where Jesus went. Okay, now number three. The ascension of Jesus was necessary to show that Jesus was and is alive. Again, that's super, super important that Jesus was and is alive. In other words, he, he didn't die. He didn't die a second time. He went up into heaven living and he still lives in heaven. So again, he was carried up into them in heaven. And, and notice Luke chapter 24 says that they worshiped him. They, they didn't worship Jesus as a dead prophet. But as the living God, they worshiped him and gave him honor. So they understood that Jesus was and is alive. Okay, now here, number four, we can say that the ascension of Jesus was necessary to send blessing. Jesus wanted his church to know that I am blessing you as I leave and I will remain in heaven to bless you from heaven. So it was very important that the church understand, that the earliest Christians, that Jesus' disposition towards them was to bless them. Listen, the disciples, when Jesus did this, they were still weak. <laughs> they were still outnumbered. They were still at a disadvantage. They still had a lot of problems going on. But he blessed them. And his blessing was still upon them. And let me tell you something, friends. The blessing of Jesus Christ is still upon his church. Okay, the next few ones, we'll get through these fairly quickly. I want to get to our questions. Number five, the ascension of Jesus was necessary to send the Holy Spirit. Again, it's promised in Luke chapter 24. It's promised in Acts chapter 1. Let me read you from John chapter 16, verse 7, where it's Jesus said to his disciples, It is to your advantage that I go away, 
For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. In other words, Jesus promised his disciples, when I depart, I will send you the Holy Spirit. And this was very important for them to understand and to have that expectation based on Jesus's promise. Number six, the ascension of Jesus was necessary for Jesus to continue his present ministry of intercession, praying for his people. We read this both in Romans chapter 8 and in Hebrews chapter 7, that Jesus lives to make intercession for his people. It's a very important idea in the Bible. Absolutely essential for us to understand that Jesus has an ongoing... Jesus isn't in heaven just waiting around for his second coming. He is actively blessing and interceding for his people. Hey, can I give you a hopeful thought today? Um, I, I am a very blessed man um, because I, I know that many people pray for me and the ministry that I do, uh, the Bible commentary and all its different aspects. I, I often ask people to pray for me, and I, I'd be blessed if you would pray for me. I recognize that there's a lot of people who don't have as many people praying for them as I have praying for me. Now, I want you to know something. Even if there is not a single other person on this earth who prays for you, Jesus Christ prays for you from heaven. He intercedes for his people. Isn't that a beautiful, hopeful thought? Friends, Jesus Christ is interceding for his people. He's praying for you. Jesus prayed for you today. Take comfort in that. Then finally, number seven, let's talk about this. The ascension of Jesus was necessary to model his return. Please notice this. It says that Jesus will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And we talked about those old things. He left physically, visibly from the Mount of Olives in the presence of his disciples uh, in with his church, he is going to return in the very same way. So these are things that give us a lot of understanding, a lot of assurance regarding uh, the work of Jesus Christ, the ministry of Jesus. This is a wonderful, powerful thing, the ascension of Jesus. Hey, today, saint, Again, I have no idea when you're watching this. I know when I'm speaking it. I am speaking it on Ascension Day, May 13th, the year 2021. Today, whether it's Ascension Day for you or not, why don't you thank the Lord for the beautiful, powerful Ascension of Jesus. And we can celebrate the fact that he is in heaven, the living God, reigning and ruling, especially over his church and interceding for his church interceding for you. With that, I'm going to move on over to the uh, questions that Devin has forwarded to me, and we'll talk about some of these. Um, Men's Fellowship asks this question, with the advent of more online ministries, is online baptism possible? Okay, Men's Fellowship, let me answer that question. Straight as you give it to me, you said, is online baptism possible? Yes, it's possible. Is it good? No, it's not good. Listen, 
we need a real flesh and blood community of believers. And baptism has many different aspects. Baptism communicates many different things. And one of the things that baptism communicates is that you are part of the body of Christ. That's one aspect of that. You are a member of his body, of his family. That is best expressed in the context of real flesh and blood people. Now, you, you didn't ask, is it best? You asked, is it possible? In men's fellowship, I'll just simply say this. There are all sorts of things that are possible in a uh, extremity, in an emergency. Is it possible for a person to baptize themselves? Yes. If there was absolute, if you were on the, so to speak, you were on the desert island and there was nobody else to baptize you, yes. Is it best? Is it optimal? No. It, it, you should only baptize yourself if that's the only way you can do it. And I would say this, you should only have an online baptism if that's the only way that you can do it. Because these beautiful gifts that God has given to us in baptism and in the Lord's Supper, part of their dynamic, I'm not saying the only aspect, but part of their dynamic is that they are communal, community things and they need to be practiced, ideally, in a real flesh and blood community. So, I hope that explains that for you there, Men's Fellowship. Sonny asks this question. I recently heard in a class that it was thought that King David was born out of wedlock to Jesse. Have you heard this, and what are your thoughts? Okay, Sonny, I'm going to suppose that this comes from Psalm 51, I believe it is. I'm just doing this freehand here. Psalm 51, where David, in this great psalm of repentance, says that he was conceived in sin. Now, the idea that David was conceived in sin has no doubt led some people to say that he was born out of wedlock, uh, out of some adulterous affair, something like that. Let me just say, that is not necessary at all uh, to interpret David's words in Psalm 51 in that way. David's words in Psalm 51 can very plainly and straightforwardly be understood as him simply saying, I was born in sin. I I'm a sinner from my birth. <laughs> from the very moment of my conception, I was a sinner and I fell short. So um, I don't think there's no other indication in the scriptures that David was born out of wedlock, that he was born out of marriage, so to speak. So uh, I wouldn't believe that he was. I think it's really just a misunderstanding of that phrase from, I believe, Psalm 51, where David says that he was conceived in iniquity. Again, it is not necessary at all to understand that as saying that David was, uh, in fact, um, born, again, it, it's not the proper term, but some people would say illegitimately. Uh, let me go into the next question here from Todd. Todd asks, other than our finances, what does good stewardship look like for Christians? What Bible passages do you suggest? All right, Todd. Uh, stewardship really has to do with whatever gifts or resources God has given you. Now, when I say God has given you, 
I don't mean that you haven't developed those resources yourself, but even the ability to develop those resources is a gift from God. Let's say that someone starts out uh, without much money. Uh, you know, they didn't receive a lot from their parents. They just didn't have a, a, a well-advantaged start in life. But uh, through hard work, through wise investing to that, they get a substantial amount of money. Now, that person might think, hey, God didn't give me this. I got it myself. Now, it's true that their hard work was involved in the building of those resources, but it's not the only factor, not by any means. And one of the factors at work was anything God gave to them providentially through other people and situations and what God gave to them personally in their even ability or desire or wisdom to work hard. So the things God has given to us either directly or indirectly, we have a responsibility to use those things to the best of our ability. So let me give you other areas of stewardship. God has given you gifts and talents are you using those gifts and talents to the glory of God? God has given us as humanity the earth to have its stewardship and dominion over. Are we stewarding the earth, the created world around us, in a way that would bring glory to God? We're wisely using the resources. We're not being destructive with the resources of the earth. And we are using them with an eye to the future to be able to continue to use the resources of the earth. So I can think of it in terms of gifts and talents. I can think of it in terms of influence. If God has given you influence, if God has given you a notable name, are you using it for his glory? Uh, God has given you abilities in your personality. Are you using those things for his glory? That is stewardship. Stewardship encompasses the wise and glorifying to God use of anything that he has given us. Now, one more thing about that. You have some scriptures that go along with it. Todd, the scripture that immediately comes to my mind is what Jesus said a couple times in the Gospels. That to whoever has, more will be given. And to whoever does not have, it'll be taken away. The, the principle is simply this. When we make wise use of what we have, then God gives more to us. If you want more of something, make wise use, God-glorifying use of whatever it is of that thing you have right now. now some people have it in their minds I'll be a good steward of my money when I'm rich. Oh, sure, when I'm rich, then I'm going to be a good steward. No, I'd say you may never become uh, better off financially that way. No, what you need to do is say, whatever God has given me right now, I'm going to make wise use of that resource. Hope that's helpful for you there, Todd. Next question comes from Ian, who asks, what is meant in 1 Corinthians 11.10 when Paul says, because of the angels. Again, 1 Corinthians eleven ten 10 says, For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is speaking in the context of head coverings in the Corinthian congregation. And the head coverings were a way of recognizing 
God's order of authority and leadership in the church. It was a way for a woman to express that she was in some sense, not in every sense, of course, but in some sense, she was under authority of the leadership that God had established in the church. Okay, that was the whole idea behind the head covering. Okay, now, one of the reasons Paul gives for women to do this, but by the way, I'm not going to get into a big thing on head coverings, but the reason I and many like me do not insist today that women in the church must wear a head covering today is because in the Corinthian church, in that ancient culture, the head covering signified being under authority. It doesn't signify that in our culture. It just doesn't. So if you were in a culture where the head covering communicated that, then I would say in church, women should do that. Uh, Apart from that, the important thing is to observe the principle, the proper respect of God's order of authority, and to not worry about uh, how culturally that might be expressed differently from culture to culture. In any regard, one of the reasons why Paul gives that instruction that people, that women should wear the head covering in the Corinthian church, why the proper order of authority should be respected is simply this, because angels are present. We have a few passages in the scripture Paul mentions it a couple times. I know Peter mentions it in his letter, where we are led to understand that our lives, and in particular, the conduct of the church as a whole, is under angelic observation. In other words, angels are watching what we do together as a congregation. Therefore, we need to show the angels that we are obedient and responsive to God's command and not show the angels that we don't care about what God has given us in the Bible. We're just going to do it our own way. Because we are under angelic observation, that is one reason. It's not the only reason, but it's one reason why the Apostle Paul says God's order of authority should be respected in the churches. So, Ian, that's really the idea, just that as one reason why God's order of authority should be respected in congregational meetings is because congregations are under angelic observation and we need to teach the angels the right lessons, so to speak. We need to show them that God's people are obedient because the Bible tells us in other passages, most notably in Ephesians, that God is using the church to teach angelic beings his wisdom and his power and his glory. Okay, hope that's helpful for you there, Ian. Next question comes from Donald, says, I've been studying how our cultural Easter celebration is from paganism. How did pagan worship come so close to the death and resurrection of Jesus a thousand years before Jesus? Okay, Donald, I don't know exactly what you're referring to. I can suppose, and so I'm just going to go by what I'm supposing you're referring to. You're supposing to the people who point out that there were resurrection um, stories or myths in the pagan world 
that preceded the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And apparently your thinking is that our celebration of Easter actually has much more to do with uh, those pagan uh, recognitions of someone coming back from the dead uh, than they do with the resurrection of Jesus. And, and this is what I would say, Donald. It is true that there are stories, myths, legends of the gods, so to speak, named this or that god from such and such place, of them coming back to life. But the differences between those stories and the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the differences are even more pronounced than the similarities. I, I would just recommend to you, look at some of the excellent work that Mike Winger has done on that uh, subject. A, a guy I recommend to you on YouTube is Mike Winger. He's a fantastic apologist. I'm very pleased to see that he's getting quite a following on his YouTube channel uh, because he really does a great job on apologetics. And uh, if there's a place where Mike and I would disagree in our approach to the scriptures, that wouldn't concern me a great deal, but I, I haven't found it yet. I mean, not that I'm looking for it. But uh, again, I, I think Mike Winger's really right on. I know that he's dealt with this in some depth. And and the, the idea is just simply this. Yes, there are some similarities between the Jesus story of his life, death, and resurrection with some pagan myths, either that happened before or after the time of Jesus. But again, the differences are even more pronounced than the similarities. So we shouldn't just think that the story of Jesus is just a reworking of those tired old myths or legends. Now, as far as the accoutrements that somebody may add to an Easter celebration, Look, nobody has any biblical command. If you don't want to have an Easter egg hunt, then don't have one. If you don't want to give chocolate bunnies to your grandkids, then don't do it. Um, if you want to say, no, on Easter, we're only going to go to church and remember the resurrection, then you have complete freedom in Jesus Christ. But, but I could see that if someone could do it without any pagan association in their heart or in their mind, then they're also free in Christ to give a chocolate bunny to their grandkids. So I think these are areas that people have freedom in Christ to do. Uh, if someone's conscience convicts them before God uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit, well, then by all means do it. But we should not be passing laws or rules for other believers based on such things. So Don, I, I hope that answer helps you. I, I hope I was sort of getting at what you were trying to get at there. Okay, uh, next question comes from Mike. Hey, Mike. Uh, Mike asked this question. Why do you think the Ascension is an unappreciated and largely neglected doctrine? Mike, by the way, Mike Negley is a friend of mine. God bless you, Mike. Blessings to you and Rachel and your whole family there in Cork, Ireland. But um, I don't know why exactly. Um, I think that many preachers and theologians just really haven't known what to do with the ascension. You know, I walked through in my lead question the seven reasons why I felt, and I wasn't trying to limit it to seven. I'm sure people could think of more. If you can think of more, please add it in the comments. Um, but I, I, 
I think that people just haven't known what to do. They haven't thought through. Obviously, when we're talking about the person and work of Jesus, we're talking with a focus upon his death and resurrection. Then I think people talk about, rightly so, his birth, his sinless life, his miracles. I think maybe is that to some people, the ascension of Jesus seems somewhat impersonal. It's Jesus departing, not Jesus drawing closer to his disciples, even though we would argue he did draw closer to his disciples through the sending of the Holy Spirit. It's remarkable what Jesus said. Jesus said that his sending of the Holy Spirit upon his ascension would be better for his disciples than his own bodily presence. He said in the Gospel of John, that is to your advantage that I go away. So I think that maybe uh, preachers and theologians haven't really understood what to do with the ascension. I think that maybe uh, it seemed a little bit distant to them. I'll give you one other reason, Mike. It happens on a Thursday. I mean, think about that. If ascension, uh, the day of ascension happened on a Sunday, a lot more preachers would preach about it, wouldn't they? I mean, Pentecost happens on a Sunday, and there's a lot more sermons about Pentecost with Sunday for our uh, British brothers and sisters. There is a lot. There are a lot more sermons about Pentecost than there are about uh, Ascension Day. Maybe the fact that it happens on a Thursday is related to that. But look, Mike, let's buck that trend. Let's encourage our pastoral colleagues. Uh, You can do it through your channels of the Expositors Collective, a wonderful ministry. Uh, let's, Let's encourage our colleagues, preach about the Ascension, talk about the Ascension, teach about the Ascension. It's something wonderful and beautiful and important aspect of Jesus's ministry. Okay, uh, thank you for that, Mike. Let me go on to Raquel. Raquel says, The Bible states that God defends Israel. I know that ultimately they do win, respectively. Why then the present day state is experiencing so much chaos and crisis? Oh, Raquel. Raquel, you ask a question. It's a very good question to ask. But I'm going to be straightforward with you. It actually has a very complicated answer. Yes, it's true. God has promised to defend Israel. And he promised that ultimately Israel will win. Win in this sense. God promises in Romans that in the end, all Israel will be saved. All Israel. And it doesn't necessarily mean every last person of Jewish extraction. But what it does mean is that the Jewish people will be known as a Messiah-believing people instead of a Messiah-rejecting people. All Israel will be saved. As it says in the prophet Zechariah, in that day, and it's speaking of the end, Jesus prophetically says, and they will look upon me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for me as one mourns for their firstborn son. It's heavy, isn't it? So yes, you're right, Rekel. Israel ultimately wins. God has promised that Israel will not pass from the earth, that Israel will not be forsaken by God. Now, it does not mean that Israel has not gone through and the Jewish people, 
I'll, I'll use those terms somewhat interchangeably, even though technically we could make a distinction between the two, uh, especially if you're talking about the modern state of Israel. But now let's just talk about Israel as the people, as meaning the Jewish people. Israel, God has said, they will endure great trial and difficulty. Matter of fact, one of the descriptions of the great tribulation in the prophet Jeremiah is it's called the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of Israel's trouble. As bad as it is for the Jewish people now, prophetically speaking, um, in some regard, it'll get worse before the very end. Now, again, God promises they will ultimately triumph. God promises they will ultimately win. God promises that they will be ultimately a Messiah accepting, not a Messiah rejecting people, but they will have to pass through significant um, difficulty along that way. There's another aspect to this. Under the Old Covenant, God said to Israel, if you obey me, I will bless you and I will bless you so much. I'm paraphrasing the ideas, both from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. If you obey me, I will bless you so much that the whole earth will know that a people could only be so blessed if the Lord was with them. But the Lord also said to them, if you disobey me, then I will bring terrible curses upon you. And the world will marvel that a people so cursed can yet endure. God said, I'll glorify myself through you one way or another, either through your obedience or your disobedience. And as much as I love and appreciate the modern state of Israel, and by the way, let me say, I also love and appreciate my Arabic brothers and sisters. And I pray that Jesus Christ will bring priests between Isaac and Ishmael. I think Jesus is the answer to bring peace between Isaac and Ishmael. This is the great answer. So while I do express my appreciation and my love for Israel and the Jewish people, I do not mean that to exclude for a moment my love and appreciation for the Arabic peoples of this world and of the Middle East. We want good and blessing for them. We want peace and prosperity for them as well. In any regard, though we appreciate Israel, or I do, I should say, I won't put that upon you necessarily, we understand that Israel today is gathered, I believe, in the plan of God, but they are gathered in unbelief. The modern state of Israel has a strong religious component with the orthodox and observant Jews, but it is by no means a majority in the nation. Most Israeli Jews are secular. And the expression of their Judaism is almost purely cultural. So, God still needs to get the attention of the Jewish people in Israel in many ways. So as you can see, Raquel, it's a complicated answer to the question, but you're right, hitting on those main points. God has an enduring role for the Jewish people in his unfolding plan of the ages, and they will not, they cannot perish from the earth until that is ultimately fulfilled, um, though it may happen through great trouble.
Okay, uh, James asks this question. Can you explain modalism? I read in a study Bible that the Holy Spirit had come so Christ could be in multiple places simultaneously. I'm curiously if this study Bible is suggesting modalism. Well, James, I would have to read the very specific words and descriptions of that study Bible. But modalism is basically this. The idea that God does not exist as a trinity with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together from eternity past to the present to eternity future, but rather that God has existed in different modes. He was God the Father, then he became God the Son, now he is God the Holy Spirit, and if God is now God the Holy Spirit, he is no longer God the Father, he is no longer God the Son. Rather, he exists in these different modes. Now, this doctrine, which is wrong, the Bible just doesn't teach this. A full biblical understanding that rightly divides the word of truth will not lead a person to modalism. It will lead a person to understand that there is one God who exists in three persons from eternity past to the present day to eternity future. Never ending. But... It is true that the Spirit of Christ can be present with all his people at once because of the sending of the Spirit with Jesus ascended into heaven. So really, to know whether or not that study Bible that you're referencing is teaching modalism, um, but understand this, James, it, it may be that maybe people are just being imprecise. Um imprecise in their terminology. Um, sometimes we accuse Christians of heresy or wrong doctrine when actually they're just confused. And we, we got to give some grace for that. Because I don't know about you, I've been confused. Sometimes I've been confused in my mind on a doctrine. Other times I've been confused in my words on a doctrine. So uh, we need to understand that. Okay, let me uh, continue on. Next question from Suju. And uh, I guess we're going to make this our last question here from Suji. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing your name there correctly. And again, uh, I, I don't know where you're from, Suji, but I would just say I do want to give another welcome and greeting to our TWR360 viewers. So pleased for the partnership that we have with that wonderful ministry of Trans World Radio 360, their online presence. But, Suji, I, I just want to deal with this question that you bring. Do people who have accepted Jesus as their Savior still need deliverance? Doesn't having the Holy Spirit in us through the acceptance of Jesus clean us from all our sin and generational curses? Suji, I, I would put it like this. Yes, there is absolute provision in the person and work of Jesus Christ on behalf of the believer to free the believer from all sin and all generational curses, that power is in what Jesus has done for the church. Now, there may be points where that needs to be consciously applied to the believer's life. And if somebody wants to say that that's, you know, again, a word like deliverance 
usually has a certain connotation or meaning in a church context. The normal connotation or meaning of that word deliverance is something I don't agree with because the normal connotation of that term is that people uh, need to be freed from demonic possession. But sometimes people use that term in a broader sense. So I guess if we're going to understand this correctly, we need to be just very precise about what we're talking about. Listen, I don't believe that a Christian can be demon-possessed, but I do believe that a Christian can be demon-harassed, if that makes sense. And I'm not going to take the time to go into it in greater depth. There is a place for a believer to very consciously take what Jesus has accomplished at the cross and apply it in a specific sense to their situation right there, right now, and live in the freedom, live in the victory that Jesus Christ has won for us. In that sense, you could say that the believer operates from the victory of Jesus, not for a victory that they would earn by their own holiness or their own efforts or their own skill in combating the forces of darkness. So, Suji, there's a lot to it, but you're on the right track. Let me just say this. There is full provision in what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross for us to be free from sin and its guilt and its stain and increasingly so as we continue to grow in Christ from the power of sin in our life. There's provision and we need to specifically apply it. There is power and authority in the work of Jesus on the cross to set us free from any of the harassment that Satan would bring against the believer. And it needs to be applied specifically to the believer's need. So again, I, I hope that answers it. You're on the right track with those things, Suji. And so I would just recommend that to you and, um, and have you take a great sense of peace and satisfaction in that work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Well, we're approaching the top of the hour. It's been in a very enjoyable hour for me to spend this. I've got news that's good for me. I don't know if it's good for you. Here's the good for me news that I will be back with you next Thursday afternoon. I'm so pleased that you could join me today. And I just simply ask that, again, do the normal things that everybody tells you to do on YouTube. Uh, hit the like button. Subscribe to our channel. Uh, leave comments. Uh, it helps with uh, just making our content a little more visible. And uh, if I'm going to go to the trouble to do this, I'd rather that it be a little more visible than a little less visible. Uh, but again, I thank you for your prayers. I thank you for your partnership with the work that we do at Enduring Word. Uh, our heart is to get good Bible resources to as many people as possible, free of charge online. And God seems to be blessing that work. Uh, so thank you for your time here together this afternoon. Thank you that we could be joined together. I want to thank Devin, uh, our moderator. I want to thank our friends at Trans World Radio, TWR360. I want to thank uh, Lance and uh, Miles and uh, Chuck, uh, the guys who filled in for me for the last three weeks. And I'll be very pleased to join you next Thursday afternoon. God bless you and see you then. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.